This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? So ready. All right. Listen, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Jordan Lamote, I got to tell you about your website. Sometimes it, the truth hurts. And you're, maybe your website's just not making it. And I understand. You got your tools. You got your saws. You got your power hammers and your anvils. You got the technique. You know what you're going to do, but the money isn't coming in. You know why? You need something to bring that money in. Your website might be the problem. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to akinteractive.com. That's Andre, Andreas Kalani, the Golden Kalani. He has got 20 years of experience in full-service design and marketing for knife makers and craftsmen. That means he's going to fix your website. And he's going to make it the way you want it because he's a knife maker. And he's been making he's been making that uh we used to make websites for all sorts of craftsmen like Steve Schwarzer, Mike Tyree, Don Wynn, Will Brigham. He knows what you need to bring in that money because, let's face it, something ain't working and you need to do with it with him. And if you send him a message, if you go to uh, – you, you could probably DM him at Andreas Kalani on Instagram. Or you could go to send him a, a message direct at akinteractive.com. Say, I need you to fix my website, Full Blast 10, and he's going to give you 10% off. And what will happen is – He'll take off 10%, and he's going to give you a bill in the beginning. You pay the deposit, and then when the whole thing's done, you pay in the end. He gives you the keys to the car. You got a new website, and he shows you how you can fix it, change it, and everything like that. And if you have any problems, you just reach out to him. He's going to, he's going to help you out. He's going to be there for you. Andreas Kalani's the man, AK Interactive. Get your website fixed. Next. Axe wax. You got your handles. You got your wet. You got your your chef knives. You got your axes and your hammers. And you want to put something on there that's going to be great. Use what a lot of people have been using and have been getting great experience with. Axe wax. Axewax.us has some of the best wax around. Food safe. No petroleum byproducts. Don't give your customers customers some Mickey. Give them a little axe wax. And if you put in full blast ten at the promo code at at axwax.us you're gonna get 10% off it's great stuff and it's also in Europe now and I know that uh, Toby over at uh, UK Knife Supplies has it you put in uh, full blast 10 with him he gonna take 10% off too or or he won't I think he will like he told me he will so give him a give him hell and you know go get some axe wax and and good luck Toby and you know everybody go get it from him if you're in Europe and you want to save on that 10% okay my guest is a extraordinary young man. Jordan Lamote is when you come when you think about taking advantage of your humanity and you think about all the things you could do in your life, I think Jordan like exemplifies taking advantage of his humanity. He's an extraordinary knife maker, he's a swords maker, bladesmith, he's a journeyman smith with the ABS. And I'm so thankful that you're here, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing well. It's an honor to be on the show. I really appreciate it, Jeff. Well, you're too kind. Listen, I want to thank you for number one because we're 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 broadcasting right before you're about to head out down to Blade Show, and I know you're you got a lot to do. And I appreciate you taking the time out to be here. Yeah, well, my my pleasure. Yeah, it's been a busy couple so, of weeks. <laughs> I bet it's been. A, are you are you so are you ready? Are you? I mean, you're about to take. Are you driving down in the next couple hours? Or well, um, yeah. So I'm going to be driving down uh, in in a couple of parts, kind of starting this afternoon, uh, doing the bulk of the driving on Wednesday. Um, 
Okay. Well, actually, Wednesday and Thursday. So, so I'm just kind of spending the week, kind of getting down to down to Atlanta. But that's good. Yeah. Am I ready? Is a, I guess maybe a loaded question. Uh, you know, um, so the the the, I guess the the big thing is I'm planning to test for my uh, Master Smith stamp uh, on Friday. So, I have been working on my five test knives for that project. Uh, for over a year now. Um, but, uh, you know, being ready for that test is, is almost impossible. It's like you, you could always spend another month just tweaking the symmetry on a piece, you know, before, before submitting it. And, and, uh, so, <laughs> uh, I had no idea you were testing for master Smith because I, I was about to say the last time I saw you, I think you just passed your journeyman Smith, right? Yeah, that would be right. It was, it would have been two years ago. Um, yeah, it was blade show 2018. So maybe you saw me in 2019. Um, but I was definitely, I definitely met you when you had gotten your journeyman Smith. Yes. And that was, and I was going to ask you about that because I was, I was, I wanted to, I wanted you to take me back because now I'm sure now the feeling has got to be very similar. What's the feeling like? You know, all right. So, for some of my listeners are not bladesmiths. So, the ABS, American Bladesmith Society, they test you to give you the designation journeyman smith and then master smith after a certain amount of years. Well, you start off you're an apprentice smith, and then you can test to become a journeyman smith, and then after a few years, you can test to be a master smith. But it's based on. Um, the performance test in the beginning, you they bend a blade and then they test the heat treatment in the blade. And then what you do is you head down to Atlanta for the blade show, which is happening uh, on this 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 coming weekend. And then you set out five knives, and then these master smiths will you know critique them. So I'm just so just to give some of the background, what was it like preparing for journeyman? You're getting your journeyman smith because you're a young guy. Yeah. Um. So I mean, pre- preparing for journeyman. Well, really, it's it's a it's a test. They're looking for specific things in the knives that you put, and they're looking for um, they, they're looking to see your competence, basically. And so, uh, you know, the, the, with both the journeyman and the master, the the first thing that I kind of set out to do was just design a set. I'd sit down, sit down, and sketch out a whole bunch of knives, and uh, and and come up with what I wanted to what I wanted to make. I wanted to make a wide variety of things that really showcase my abilities at the time. And that was very much the way I approached journeyman. Uh, I wanted right. to show that I could do some of the very typical, um, ABS style, uh, things kind of speaking in the language of the ABS. So, you know, working with, you know, buoy knives with ricassos and fit guards. And then I also wanted to add in some of the other things that I was really interested in. So integral bolsters and, uh, kind of smooth transitions, some of the curvier, uh, profiles that are, are quite popular these days. So, um, and then, and then you need to make them to a very high standard of fit and finish and symmetry. And so that's, kind of the second part of it. So first there's the design and then there's the, the execution. And I made my journeyman pieces over the course of three or four months, uh, in the, the spring of 2018. And it's I, not a lot of time. it is, yeah, it is a long time. And, and, um, no, no, I said, it's not a lot oh, of time. Not a I, don't think oh. three months, I don't think three months is a long time to make, you know, those types of testing knives. It's, it's a short period of time. I would say. True. Yeah. Yeah. I guess journeyman, well, journeyman is much 
quicker than master smith i mean i've i've put probably um at least six months into my master smith set uh hmm. and and probably more than that so when you get down there back in 2018 you set up your table and is there a lot of like are you are you more nervous about having a table or are you more nervous about getting involved with the, the all these, you know, these master smiths who are about to, the judges. Oh, the, like, I'm just trying to get into the idea of I can't imagine the stress of of like being prepared to present your knives. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's um, you know, the 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 first. So the judging happens before the the show starts. It happens early Friday morning uh, before anybody set up in the show or anything. So I, I did have a table. They actually have a, a policy for testers to get half a table. So it was a little bit, it took some of the pressure off. I didn't have to bring a whole lot of inventory or anything like that. Right. Um, but the, the testing was the main reason I went down to blade show and that was my first time down there. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely nervous. I mean, um, but I also, I was working, to, to kind of let go, because at a certain point, you've done all of the work in the shop that can be done. And then right. you just, you know, get on the road to Blade Show, driving or flying or taking the train or however you're getting down there. Um, and there's nothing more you can do, really, except just make sure your knives don't get scratched or rusty. Um, oh. oh, my God. You know, so you, you just need to you just kind of settle into it and uh and then you just got to accept what what comes at you i there was a little bit of choice i I, when i tested for journeyman smith i brought seven knives down and i had to submit five so um you know there was a little bit of a a decision process as to which five were my strongest five and um that i made the 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 morning of the testing you know in the room there with all the other smiths um, so did you get to speak to any of the judges or? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really great. I mean, the, the American Blacesmith Society is they're, they're dedicated to education. They, they want to encourage young people, um, well, people of any age really who, who are getting into the craft, uh, especially. And, um, and, and so you don't get to speak to the judges before the judging, but once the judging is complete, then they, they bring you into the room and they talk about what you did well and what you, you know, you know, critique, give you critique on your knives, which can be really helpful. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was really encouraging. I got to talk to, to all of the, the fellas who are on the judging panel and, and, uh, and they were really, really nice guys. Now, did you know them before you went in there? I knew a handful of them. Yeah, Joe Salaski was on the panel, and he actually was on my flight down to Blade Show, so I saw him briefly on the plane. Um, uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember everybody who was, who was on that list. Um, because I would think that I would think that it would be not in your favor to know the judges. I mean, people think, you know, yeah, the fix is in because he knows them. But when I talk to... Jason's Jason Knight. I was fascinated by the fact that I think I feel like he's the outlier. If you're preparing for to judging, you got guys like Jason Smith who I love. He's not going to be. He's not going to go down the road that you think he's going to go. I I felt like when I talked to him on Knife Talk, he was saying when I'm. I don't think he's doing anymore judging anymore. But I think he was looking more towards what somebody's trying to get across as opposed to the little fit and finish things. I don't think that, so I would think that a guy like Jason Knight or somebody like that, who has a different mindset of how they judge would make it 
you know, a little bit more difficult. Plus the fact that if they know you, they might be harder on you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's possible. I mean, I, I try not to play too many mind games with it because, you know, it's a small world, the ABS. It's uh, they're only, you know, a couple hundred mastersmiths and the judges are usually picked from a, a much smaller subset who come to the blade show regularly. So there's right. a lot of turnover. If you've been to the show a couple times, you've definitely met a lot of the judges. Um, you know, and, and I think that the fact that every judge looks for something different is, is kind of cool. I mean, it, it, it really depends on how, what, what kind of mindset you come into the testing. But for, for yeah. me, the most important reason to test is because it makes me a better knife maker. It's not right. because I can then, you know, stamp this extra stamp on my knife necessarily. Uh, it's, it's really because the act of making the test knives, submitting them for, for critique and getting the judges feedback from seven different judges who have seven completely different outlooks on how blades ought to be made, ought to be designed and, and how they should be judged. It's, it's a really valuable process to, to improve your craft. Hmm. So I felt at the, by the time when I, when I made my journeyman set, I felt very firmly that I could not, I, I was not of journeyman quality until I made the set. Hmm. Like I was wow. making really nice knives before making my journeyman Smith set, but making the journeyman Smith set made me a journeyman. It wasn't just the proof that I could do it. It was, it was actually the process of making them was important to the, to the growth. It was an important piece of my, my growth as a bladesmith. None of this surprises me. We're going to get back into that because I got a lot, we have, we have to go into the, you know, there's a lot more to Jordan Lamote than, <laughs> than the, his testing, but I need to kind of, now I need to kind of like, as I have you, what is the different feeling or the similar feelings? Now you're going down with the master smith, and the master smith, from what I understand, the biggest difference is you have to do, you have to do a quill and dagger. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, really, I think fundamentally the biggest difference is the level of scrutiny that the knives get. Uh, journeyman is looking for competence. Master is looking for mastery. And the knives need to be darn near perfect. I mean, nobody's made a perfect knife, but the the knives that succeed on the Mastersmith test are really, really close. And so working to that level is is the biggest challenge. Um so the the, the Keon dagger is a is a big um yeah it's a it's a big project for sure. It's a it's a difficult one because it has an extra dimension of symmetry. You have both front to back and side to side symmetry. Um, so there, there are more places to uh, make mistakes and to catch mistakes. Uh, but, but the biggest thing is, is it's just a higher standard to, to work to. So how are you feeling? Are you feeling confident? Or are you just kind of like Zen? I got a feeling that in your family, I feel like everyone's pretty Zen about a lot of things. So, but I would imagine that there's still this, you know, the similar feelings. I mean, it's only been two years. So you have that feeling of you're getting these things and you're probably looking and looking and looking and looking. How are you feeling? Are you now? Cause when this comes out, hopefully right as it's coming out, you're being judged and I'm talking to the future Jordan and I'm saying, I got your back. We all got your back. We're all pulling for you as we're listening to this right now. We're all pulling for you because it's just like, it's so exciting. I, I didn't realize that you were going to, I was very excited 
that you're I'm excited hearing that you're going to be testing for it and we're just all pulling for you. Oh, well, I, I appreciate but, it. Yeah. I mean, so how I'm feeling, um, uh, sometimes corresponds with the narratives I tell about how I'm feeling. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, at, at some level, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous. Uh, it's something that I have wanted since I started making knives. Um, basically. So, so it's, it's been a, it's been a goal of mine for a very long time. Uh, and, and I wish that I had more time to prepare. I mean, there, there, I feel like the knives that I've made are really good. They've made me better and I could do better if I were to make a whole new set. Um, Hmm. but, uh, but I, I do think that the work that I have put together is good. I'm not positive it will pass. Um, but you can't be, I mean, like it's, you, you don't know. Um, it's, it's entirely possible that I've overlooked some small detail that, uh, that will be, you know, a, a, a failing, um, you know, flaw for, for a majority of the judges. And that's, that's, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm just kind of resigned to that fact that it's, it's possible. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, I, I think I'm feeling <laughs> calm enough right now. Sometimes I'm feeling a little bit, uh, more on edge, but as I get closer to the time where I actually just have to get in the car and leave, I'm, forcing myself to, to let go of any, uh, stress. Cause at, at a certain point there's, there's not anything more you can do. Um, right. And I'm going to submit my it, knives. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, Oh no, I'll wait until another year to test. Cause, cause I do oh, think yeah, that the work that I have is good enough to test. So, I mean, at, at this point in time, you're getting ready to get in the car. You got everything packed up, or is there a possibility you're thinking, you know what, I could do one more pass at nine thousand grit on something? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, if this was me, I don't think I could be calm enough to be on a podcast talking about the work and thinking, you know what, I forgot that one part. Maybe I should go back. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, all hell breaks loose. You know, right, right, yeah. Well, um, there are, uh, yeah, I, I have about three hours of shop time this afternoon, probably. Um, and I have a couple of small things that I want to fix. Uh, oh no! But it well, I believe they're pretty, in you. I pretty, believe pretty in minimal. You It'll be all right. Okay, good, good, good. And I just we were, I'm pulling for you, Jordan. I, this is awesome. This is super cool. Thanks, Jeff. And like, Dad, this coming out on Friday. This is the day's to everybody listening. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this on Friday, he's being tested as we speak, and we're all sending him good vibes. Yeah. Well, and here now, I am adding so much pressure, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You listen. You know what? I, here's the here's the interesting thing, and I, I just going kind of learning about you and your family is, I have a feeling that this is not new business with you and your family. So you grew up in Boston, from what I understand, yes. and then as in your mother was a was a Harvard professor a well-known writer you know about dance and philosophy and and we, i want to get into your mother's a fascinating yeah. character and in the meantime your father was a pianist and a composer in this incredibly intricate way of i mean i, I you guys decided to move we're going to talk about your dad and your totally you you guys you, what possessed your family your mother and your father very intellectuals what possessed them to to leave Boston and go on to find this farm in Hebron in New York? <laughs> yeah, well, you've definitely done your research. This is great. Um, yeah, uh, so it was basically a dream that my parents had from early on in their uh, relationship that 
they wanted to at some point move out to the country and uh have a a farm for arts and ideas was their their idea you know they they hmm. they wanted to have a space in nature where they could um where they could do their art where my mom could do her dance and my dad could do his music and they could bring other artists in to collaborate. And, and so that was, that was kind of their initial dream was to, to create this center for arts and ideas. And, uh, and, and we were pretty settled with, you know, my, my parents were both working in, in, um, in Boston and then, and they were both doing their, uh, you know, my mom had her professorship, uh, as, as you mentioned, and my dad was, um, was, was gigging and, and recording and, uh, and, and so they, they were, were fairly settled in Boston for a while. Um, it's the, the, the impetus to move funnily enough kind of came from my sister, Jessica, um, who is two years younger than I am. Uh, Jessica always wanted animals. Uh, she, she is actually just graduated veterinary school at Tufts and, uh, she has always loved animals and and wanted animals. And she was seven at the time we, we moved in 2005. Um, and, uh, and my parents said, well, you know, we can't have any animals in the city. We live on this tiny piece of land and, and, uh, and, and a, you know, a small house with, you know, three kids at the time. And, and, and so they, they didn't want animals in the, in the city, but they said, yeah, well, one day we'll move to the country and, and you can have your animals, your horse specifically. She really wanted a horse. And, uh, and so she decided she was going to make that happen. So seven year old Jessica went on the internet and Googled for farms in Vermont, uh, because Vermont was one of the, you know, like the ideal place that my parents had kind of thought about. And she came up with a uh, Vermont border farm. So, the farm in Hebron that we now live at, she found on the internet at age seven. Um, so yeah. And my, my parents said, okay, well let's, uh, take a little road trip and have a look. And they put an offer on it and put their house for sale. And, and, uh, and we moved. Oh my seven year old Jessica. Unbelievable. I would, if my kid was seven years old and said, Hey dad, I found this place. I want to, I want to get a horse. And you're like, yeah, me too. But everybody does get back to, get, what are you talking about? Go watch the cartoon. Yes. I, 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 it is incredible that your, your sister, your parents had such, your parents had such like faith in this idea. You know, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, everybody wants a horse. Come on, kid. You know, you know, but right. I, I, it's, it's what's what it, I just, I find that all incredibly supportive. Like there's nothing more supportive than like even paying attention to your seven year old and like looking into it, getting everybody in the car and let's go check this place out. I mean, how did she feel at the end of it all being like, Hey, I just kind of manifested this reality for our whole family at seven years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, it was really a collaborative thing. We, you know, so my parents were, were ready for the, the change. They, they were definitely prepared to take this big leap and, uproot and move to the con- the country. And, and so, you know, Jessica had found this farm. We looked at a bunch of other listings as well. So we, we looked at a couple of other places and, uh, and it was really a, co- a collaborative kind of venture. And then it was, it was, um, 
you know, we, we looked at all those places and, and the farm that we settled on, the one that Jessica had found, uh, was the one that I said, you know, I could really see us being here. Um, and so it was kind of everybody was involved in, in the decision. And I think that's kind of the, the story of the way that our, our family has, has worked in general is um, we try to make it so that all the decisions are, are helping everybody. You know, that the, the idea yeah. is we all support one another. And and that's kind of what 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 makes it work. See, if you weren't supportive, your sister would not be graduating uh, veterinary school. She'd be a realtor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that would be. I mean, that would be like. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, if she's like at seven years old, they bought bought a house. I mean, I got convinced my parents to buy a house. Maybe I got something. The, I would have told my kid if she'd done that. Be like, yo, we're gonna. I'm gonna get your real estate yes. license. Okay, eighteen. You're gonna like work for realtors. You're gonna move, move some property. Totally. Yeah. But. Uh, so you so you move into this place from rural you and you guys immediately got like you know cows and oxen and chickens what was the what was the, how did you decide to, to know how to do all this farming Yeah well so my parents had no intention of farming when they moved uh and that the horse was still kind of a distant pipe dream at the, at that time it was really um when I when I got to the farm, I was really captivated by the history of the place. It was a dairy farm for uh, uh, over a hundred years. In the, uh, with, I mean, the, the house was built in 1840, and uh, and so it was it was basically consistently a dairy farm between there and the um, mid 20th century. And I was taken by the history. I I felt like I really wanted to to learn about the kind of old ways of farming the land and and I wanted to have cows and that was I guess hmm. I was fifth fifth grade at the time I I told my parents okay I I want a cow um and uh and they bought me a book and uh I did a bunch of research and and we joined the local 4H club and and kind sure. of got into the cow and 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 uh we got a calf from a from a local farm and um bred her and and then we're milking a dairy cow. And, and so there was, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a process of, of learning and growing. And then it, I kind of drew my siblings in. So my, both my younger sisters, Kira and Jessica were, um, were also involved in the farming and they got their own cows. And, and, uh, and then I got my team of oxen. That was kind of my, um, I was interested. I, I, we didn't have a tractor or a, or a way to, you know, pull anything around the farm. I, I felt like we needed uh, we needed a way to, to 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 do the actual farming, and so draft animals seemed like an accessible way for me to do that. Um, so I got got into oxen, and I uh, got a team, uh, well, a pair of calves from a, a local farm, and trained them and made their yokes, carved their yokes out of, out of wood and, and steam bent the bows. And, 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 um, and so it also kind of satisfied some of my, my, uh, desire for handicrafts there as well. You know, I made all of the equipment for the oxen. Um, so it's a whole process of just, just learning a whole bunch of different kind of old skills, basically. I, so you do you feel like maybe being on that farm made you just kind of want to go back and be kind of like be uh, reverential towards what had happened on that farm? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was, I mean, I was intrigued by the the whole way that, uh, particularly pre-industrial agriculture would have been done uh, with draft animals. So one 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 thing that um, 
the old uh, the, the the farmer who had lived on our farm and it, it had grown up on our farm lived just down the road from us uh and he would come over and talk to us uh, and tell us all sorts of stories. And he had a he had a m- memory like a steel trap. He could tell you the exact year any building on the farm was built, and you know who built it. And uh, and he, he had said that his father had farmed the whole hillside and planted potatoes with draft horses. But uh, once they switched to tractors, they couldn't cultivate the hill anymore because it was too steep. Right. Um, you know, so so that, for instance, you know, I was I was intrigued by that, and uh, and the, mm. the the barns that were all these giant hand hewn uh, timber frames, uh, I was is kind of uh, curious as to how they were built and and the tools and techniques that were used. So you got th- four four cows or three cows. What are you doing with all the milk? Yeah, so well, we have one milking right now. Um, we've we've had as many as four um, at a time, and. Uh, the, the kind of the height of it was before Jessica and I went to college because uh, everybody was home. You know, the, it takes a fair bit of work. You got to milk the cow at least once yeah. a day, often twice a day. Um, yeah. So we, we have done all our dairy products for a long time. Uh, we make cheese, yogurt, butter, ice cream. I've, I drink a lot of milk, not as much as I used to, but I, uh, I still drink a fair bit of milk. Um, and, uh, you got to do something exactly. with it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. You got, you got all this. I mean, all of, all of a sudden, I'm, you're talking about all these cows. I'm just like, what are you going to do with all this milk? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, the cows give a remarkable amount of milk, particularly in the summer when the grass is high and they have lots of good nutrition. And uh, and with all that abundance, you basically figure out how to do it. Do how to how to how to do something with it. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of a theme with farming in general. Like when you have a crop that comes ripe you have a whole lot of it all at once and you need to figure out how to store it and process it so that you can right. uh, kind of stretch it out so that it's not all just a, a boom and bust thing. Um, so you got to learn how to, you got to learn how to make cheese. You got to learn all this stuff. You guys, I feel like your parents are very suggestible. <laughs> I feel like you could, I feel like you could almost talk them into anything. And you guys were like, you used that suggestibility as you were very positive with your family. You didn't come up with any crazy ideas that you didn't, do but what I what I what I find I find fascinating about your family in general is it just seems as though you come up with something an idea and then you see it all the way through and one of the things that I love it's very enjoyable and I get to listen to a lot of it is you you're because your family is so your father's a composer you guys all as a family made a musical yes Yes. And what I found to be hilarious is this was the original idea behind, you know, your life as content, because you basically, you know, with now with social media and everything like that, stories and, you know, YouTube, you're kind of documenting your life. You guys made a musical based on let's move to this farm and what are we going to do with this cow? And it seems as though every decision you guys made you made a song about it and, and all of a sudden you're an off Broadway and you're talking about what do you do? Cause I remember you were talking about the, the, the milk. There's a song about buying cows and what do we going to do with all this milk? Yep. Basically it's so, so this, the, 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 the musical is called, is it, would you call it a musical? Yeah. Or so I, it I was know. a musical. Yeah. It, um, so my mom was the, the kind of primary composer. She wrote the book and uh, all the lyrics and the melodies for the songs. And then my dad did the, uh, all of the accompaniments and arrangements. 
And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, the musical is called happy if happy when, which was a kind of saying that my, my parents had, uh, for, for a while, you know, the, the, the idea that, um, you, you can't just wait for something to come around to be happy. You have to, you have to actually live in the moment and, 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 uh, be happy in the moment. You can't just say, Oh, I'll be happy if this happens or I'll be happy when this happens. Um, yeah, anyway, so it's, it's, it's called happy if happy when, and, uh, and we performed it at a, at a, at a whole bunch of different theaters in a, in a couple of different capacities and, and iterations. Uh, and it started the whole family in roles that roughly corresponded with, um, with their own person, their own, uh, you know, real life people. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I noticed that you guys have, you guys almost have your own characters loosely based upon your. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's a little bit fictional, fictionalized to make it t- read a little bit more, uh, naturally as a story, but a lot of the, a lot of the dynamics and the, um, and even details are, are directly taken from, uh, our, our lived experience. I I feel like I feel like the idea of having these que- these life questions and then all of a sudden being like, hey, this would be a great song. Let's talk about what you do with the cows and all the milk. And it was like, I mean, it was just like a, such a smart move. And and I I love the fact that I remember, I think it was a couple years. I don't know if it was a couple years ago or what, but you guys had also performed Happy If Happy When uh, off Broadway. Right? Yes. Uh, so I guess it's technically an off off Broadway. Um, it was a it was a small. Uh, it's a slightly smaller theater. Um, we performed, uh, yeah. So we we performed at two different theater festivals um, in Manhattan, and then we did a five night run uh, just at the at in, in at the end of December uh, would have been twenty nineteen. Uh, that was at the Gene Frankel Theater, which is a which is a little off off Broadway uh, theater. That's not so, a nothing theater. It's not a nothing that's a, theater. That's a real, it is a real that's theater. A real it theater. was a, we had real audiences, not huge audiences per se, because it's a small space. But but we we had real audiences, and it and it was it was a lot of fun. And it's it's just the experience of putting on a show, uh, being in a cast, and and you know having several nights, um, you know running for several nights is is a really great one. It's a uh, it's different than than you know one night concert kind of deal you you have to settle yeah. into a rhythm and and you get to know the show better the more times you do it so the interesting thing i found about your father you both your parents are pretty extraordinary <laughs> people your father is a, is a composer and the kind of i don't know if he's still he's a pianist and a composer the kind of perform just reading about the kind of performances that he's, the performances that he was doing it's so unorthodox to me, but it's so fascinating because he's got such a mastery of the piano and music. So basically what he does is every night is different. It's spontaneous. It's it's because he has such a grasp of music, he's able to conjure up these concertos <laughs> for the most part out of thin air. It's almost like this degree of meditation. And it's it's talking about you being a master smith he's he's allowed himself to have these performances that are unique based on the kind of weather outside <laughs> or the place that it's in or there's something about it that's so masterful 
because it's not like, oh, listen, you can learn five, ten songs, and all of a sudden it's just like, all right, I've screwed this one up or something like that. And it isn't necessarily jazz. A lot of times it's not j- I mean, the, the, the songs that I heard weren't jazz where you think it's just like um, – you think it's very like spontaneous or freestyling. There's this, there's this, uh, there's the this composer like approach that everything seems he's capturing this mood in this moment. And the fact that every day it's every concert is going to be different is like stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's improvisation. It's, it's, you know, capturing the moment with, uh, with with just kind of channeling the music that comes out of you and uh and it's it's a beautiful thing but it's 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 truly in this i want to get this has been very interesting to me because it's so different from what you do as a as a bladesmith Mm. you know the idea of i'm love the idea of manifesting ideas in a physical form and me with music you're 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 not it's not a physical form you're creating something that's a very ne- in the now especially when you're I'm not talking about you know if it's on iTunes or something like that you're you're especially when you're playing something in in the way he's playing it it's almost like it's a once in a it's a one time shot yeah like it's never going to be the same twice and you're part of a moment and you, he's able to have his mastery over music and and musical theory to create something beautiful. It's not just like, all right, let me hit a couple of pots and pans together and hopefully things work <laughs> out. He clearly has this. He clearly has a very very deep understanding of how music is played and how the piano works and how you know th- th- music theory. When you're talking about being a bladesmith, especially a knife maker, especially an ABS knife maker, you're the ability to, and I'm just talking about as a, I'm not talking about your work now and we're going to go into your work. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea is, is it's almost impossible at, at the ABS level to be spontaneous. There are so many expectations in regards to what you know and what you're expected of. There is no ability for you to have that degree of of the spontaneity, spontaneity and, and this meditative, you know, outpouring. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And this is actually something that I think about even in the context of my own life a lot, because I am also a musician. I majored in music in college and and I have done a lot of playing with my dad. Uh, I mean, both in, in high school when he was my music teacher and and also uh, afterward, you know, doing a lot of improvisation uh, with him. And, 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 you know, and, and that's kind of my approach to music as well is an is improvisatory kind of um you know, uh, style. And so, so I, I feel like they are, uh, very complementary in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the knife making, you do have to really sink in and scrutinize every little bit and you can go back and make edits and, and kind mm. of keep, um, refining this one thing. Whereas improvisation, there's there's all sorts of practicing that happens, but the practicing is is kind of its own separate thing because then once you begin the performance, it doesn't it doesn't stop. It, you can't go back and change anything. You can't you know it, it it's it's a it's a it's a one time thing. So it's it is it is a very different uh, kind of quality of um, creation. But but it's it, what he's doing. He's not winging it. You know, it's like you could say, all right, he's just kind of in this, you know, meditative. I'm not, I'm using, I'm using my words as a meditative yeah, state yeah. or flow state or whatever like that. But it's not like, 
like winging it is like hoping things are going to go well. He's manifesting things to go well because he knows what's kind of going to happen from a very, very deep understanding. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then now we talk about your mom. I'm your mother's was a was a Harvard professor. She's written six books, I think six books or something like that. Yeah. Very, very about dance and about religion and philosophy. And what I found to be interesting and I wanted to know in regards to about how her she relates to you is one of her books was about the philosophy of dance and light. I don't think I'm getting it right, but it was how it was yeah. like how dance the bottle. Why, why we dance? Is that the why the we book? dance? Right. Yeah. Why we dance? And it's there's this fascinating connection between the philosophy of dance and and the motion and 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 about communication and stuff like that. I've always felt that blacksmithing is very there's a lot of similarities between blacksmithing and dance because it is very, number one, it is very performative, but with real blacksmiths, when I say real, I'm not talking about the guy who guys who just like hit the anvil just to kind of play. Mm -hmm. There is a tempo involved and there is a degree of uh, a performative thing because you have a degree of efficiency that you must have in order to kind of capture the moment of the, the seal coming out of the fire. I'm interested to know how your mother sees that performative aspect of what you do. Oh, totally. Yes. We've, we've definitely talked about this, uh, you know, together. I mean, so my mom's kind of philosophy in is, you know, dance is the ability to see and imitate and respond to movement. So it's, it's, Hmm. you know, kind of a a broad definition of dance as the ability to learn how to move basically based on your context, your surroundings, your experiences. And, and blacksmithing is exactly that there's, it's, it's, you, you, you are, I mean, on, on a basic level, you're imitating the 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 kinds of movement that you see in your mentors or your teachers um but you're also um you have to have an a, a deep understanding of how the metal will move when you hit it in a particular way and support it in a particular way you're basically pinching the the metal between a hammerhead and an anvil most of the time and uh and and to to have a concept of how that will move and then how um by extension, how you need to move your body in order to make that metal move where you want it to, and in order to um, to, to 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 do it efficiently and uh, without injuring yourself. You know, there, there's there's a um, there's also a, a big portion of blacksmithing is just being able to work efficiently and effectively uh, with the 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 body that you have. I would think that with the, your parents' influence, because the influence of your parents is very, <laughs> you all of you seem like you're very, like I said in the beginning, like I always say, I was talking to my kid about, uh, we were walking the dog today and we were just saying, she's like, I can't believe I'm a human. Like, I, I feel like we got lucked out. I lucked out. And she's going through some tests right now where she's going to be tested for, you know, uh, she got AP tests coming up and she's a little stressed oh, out of yeah. it. We're just we're talking about something like that. And, and she's just like, you know, it, it is really crazy that we are, you know, that we're humans. I mean, we kind of, we're not ants or worms or something like that. And I, and we were talking about how, yeah, some people take advantage of the fact that they're humans and they do everything they can. It feels like your family 
have taken advantage of your ability to become human and you've like ex- accelerated the growth of learning and stuff like that. And I can only imagine now when I think about what your dad's doing with his concerts, mm-hmm. you know, he's just getting out there and I'm in my, in my mind, I'm and I'm thinking to myself, it's me, you know, me, I'm a mental patient. So what do I know? <laughs> but I'm thinking I'm behind the scenes. I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? How am I going to start this off? And then, I would think that when he gets out there, he's manifesting this idea. But what you're doing as a blacksmith and a bladesmith is you have a physical manifestation of the activity that you're doing. You have you end up with something that's a physical manifestation of the deep understanding of what you have. And there is something to be there's something to be it's a beautiful it's a very I must be very satisfying to you. And I would think that for your father, it would be very satisfying for him to see you or both your parents, for him to be able to see you have a deep understanding of something. By the way, that's the name of this, this episode is Jordan Lamote has a deep understanding. <laughs> you have a deep understanding of what you're doing and then you're actually manifesting itself. And I think that there has to be this incredible satisfaction from that. Yeah. Oh, t- totally. Yeah. And, and, and because, yeah, it is, it is a, a knife you know, when, when you end up with a knife or, or, or a forged object of, of any sort, or, you know, it, it's, it's a, a very concrete record of yeah. your yeah, experiences exactly. and knowledge and expertise and processes, uh, all, all or of that in day, physical form of that day. It's a, it's a concrete, it's a concrete, ex, uh, example of what happened. That exactly. Day. Exactly. Cause you can have a bad day and all of a sudden you get a couple mishits <laughs> and just the way it is. Yep. I, I, how did you get into blacksmithing to begin with? Yeah, so I, I, um, I mean, I think I touched on it a little bit. The the inspiration of the farm was, uh, was no small part of my uh, my interest in blacksmithing. Though it did go a little bit earlier than that. Uh, when we lived in Arlington, um, in you know outside of Boston, uh, I had my little workshop under the stairs where I would make little wooden swords and knives and. Uh, that sort of thing. And, 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 uh, so I, I've always been working with my hands. Um, and I always love to build things. And, uh, so when we got to the farm, it opened up some opportunities. We had all this barn space. I felt like, you know, I, I could, you know, maybe put together a little bit of a bigger shop, uh, whatever right. that meant. I was really interested in traditional woodworking. I mentioned the timber frames being really fascinating to me. I was doing a lot of reading and research on things like log cabin building and, uh, and, and kind of hand tool woodworking. And I wanted to be able to make my own tools, both for the farm and for woodworking, because I was, uh, whatever, 12, 13 at the time. And, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have much money. I didn't know how, you know, to, to buy all these tools. They're hard to find because, uh, you know, the, the, the best way to find good old tools is to like drive around to flea markets. And I didn't have my license and we lived in the middle of nowhere. And like, you know, so, so I, 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 decided to kind of take matters into my own hands. I, I've always liked the idea of being really independent and being able to make what I need, that kind of um, self-sufficiency uh, yeah. has always appealed to me. And uh, and blacksmithing was a part of that. I wanted to be able to make the things that I, the, the, the tools that I wanted on the farm um, and make hardware for the barns and, and, and whatever else. Um, so when I was 14... I took my first blacksmithing class. I had kind of told my parents that I was interested in blacksmithing. They 
gave me a book and then another book. Uh, again, it's the same, that's it's the same do. thing. It was, that's what they do in your it's family. It's what they do. That's what they do in your family. Yeah, well, that's what they do. They give you a book and then they say, okay, go exactly. Ahead. But, but because, you know, they, they don't just support whims. They want to support passions and, and, you know, they, they, my parents were conscious about that. Like they weren't just going to buy me a forge and an anvil because I said I wanted a forge and an anvil one day because that, that it's, it, there was no guarantee that I would really stick with it and really, you know, want, want to do it. And the same was true with the cows or with the oxen. Um, really the same, the same kind of scenario of events. I, I, Tell my parents, okay, this is this is really what I want. Here are all the reasons that I want it. Here's why it would be great for the farm, for everybody, and and uh, and why my life can't be complete without it. And they buy me a book, and uh, then I do a lot of research, and then I come back with a more revised argument, given the research that I had done, um, and then and then we take the the steps to figure out how to make it happen. So. Um, in that case, you know, I had read a couple of blacksmithing books, and I took. A blacks, I, I, they signed me up for a blacksmithing class to just see whether I would like it. You know, who who knows? Right. Um, you know, I'd never really, I'd never worked with hot metal before. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd hammered things. I'd you know, pretended to be a blacksmith on little you know wooden anvil and with a with a bending nails with a claw hammer. But um, you know, I, I I had never actually done blacksmithing, so I took a, a blacksmithing class at Salem Artworks, which is 20 minutes down the road from us. Um, and I fell in love with it. And we, we, uh, kind of went through the process of, of setting up a shop. Um, uh, so I, uh, we got in touch with some local blacksmiths and I found an anvil and a, and a hand crank forge blower. And I got in touch with a local machinist down the road who helped me, uh, get a piece of, sheet steel and, and kind of, um, and, and cut and bend it into a, into a forge body. And I built a wooden frame for it and I pieced together a chimney. So, you know, I just built the shop from, from the ground up. And the cool thing about blacksmithing is you start with a hammer and an anvil and a forge and you can make everything from there. So I really spent my first two years of blacksmithing, just making tools for my shop, you know, and, and other things, you know, Christmas gifts for my siblings. And I made a whole lot of wall hooks and whatnot. Um, but I, the, the kind of the primary thing that I was doing was making my own tongs and punches and chisels and, uh, starting to learn how to make hammers. And, uh, and, and, and that was how I built my skills was by building my shop. I feel like there's a lot of elevator pitches in your house. I feel like your parents, like if I was your dad, I'd be like, oh my God, I got to watch my back. They're going to pitch me yep. something. Jordan's <laughs> coming over. He's going he's gonna to pitch me an idea that I got to wa watch out. Oh, get him the book. Oh, now we're going to get him the thing. He's going to build everything. Yep. I, I, love, I love the fact, I, I think that a lot of nowadays, we talk on Knife Talk, we talk to a lot of young people who learn about knife making from YouTube and then they decide to get into it early and they don't have this you know, great understanding for blacksmithing and, 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 you know, how to make your own tools and how to be self-reliant. And, and I, I think that for you, it was such a, it was more of a necessity as opposed to a want, like that idea of being able to make your own tongs and make your own hammers and then learning about making your, and making your own forge and stuff like that. There's a degree of, there's more of a necessity than as opposed to it, it being a vanity situation totally. where you're just like, I want to make an EDC knife. I, I, how did you, were you going, were you, were you going to regular school? Were you guys going to regular school? Were you home um, Yeah. So I, I went to, uh, 
I went to the public school and the local public school until seventh grade, and then I transferred to uh, Long Trail School in Dorset, Vermont, which is a a, a smaller um, private school. And so I went there. It, it's a, it's just a day school, um, so a really regular school. Um, mm. And I went there through through senior year. So I was really just taking my time uh, after school some days and on weekends. And uh, of course, on vacations to to spend the time on the farm or in the shop or, um, and 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 kind of work around the school schedule. Yeah. It's, you seem. It seemed like your childhood was so <laughs> like these. I remember. I remember seeing the images of the oxen, and I remember feeling very sad because one of your oxen had passed away. You had it for like almost twenty years. Or something um. Like yeah. He he was he was a little over ten years old. Yeah. Ten years. Yeah. Old. Ten years. So old. I got him. Um. Gosh, I'm not great with years, but that's okay. I'm the worst. Yeah, Don't worry yeah. about it. it I, 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 it, the, it just seems as though I can't imagine that if you have a farm, you got the cows and you got the oxen and the chickens and everything like that. You're building the shop. There's no time for school. Well, yeah, I mean, you make it work with with what you've got. Uh, you know, I, I, I really disliked homework at school. Like, I, I, I didn't mind school in itself. Um, yeah, school was fine, but I. I have always detested homework because it right. felt like a total invasion of my my time where I was at home and could work on my projects that were I was really passionate about. And so, um, you know, I guess I found ways to 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 work around that. I I mean, I would procrastinate a lot. Uh, but I I guess toward the end of high school, I came up with my system, which is basically just leave all the homework until the morning of um when it was nice. due and i'd do it in the car on the way <laughs> and uh oh, that surprises yeah. me that surprises me because i feel like when you said i was really resentful for homework because of the time i can think of as like of course this guy has he does he doesn't have he's got 24 hours of the day and he needs at least 20 of them to do what he needs to do <laughs> and i can just i can totally imagine it being a total invasion is the perfect you know i've talked to so many people who just they hated school and they just hated school but it really was infringing on on the things you needed to get yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. But it surprises me, it surprises me that you were so resentful that you were just like, you know what? I'm doing these at the last minute and I'm just going to knock it out on the way home, way to school. I mean... I find that very surprising. Yeah, it's... I, maybe maybe I exaggerated a little bit. Like, I did well in school. I really... I, I cared about getting good grades and, and, and doing my best work or... I guess maybe I couldn't say my best work, but doing quality work, like I, I didn't want to just, you know, knock it out carelessly. But but I also was conscious of the fact that I, I had a lot of things that I was really passionate about that I really wanted and needed to do. Um, and I was not the type of guy who could just buckle down and get the homework over with uh, and then and then move on to the things that were fun, because one, I needed daylight hours. I didn't have. I didn't have electricity in my shop or anything. So if I wanted to go, you know, forge after school, I'd have to, I'd have to get in the shop as soon as I got home so that I'd have a couple of hours of daylight before it, uh, before I'd have to go inside. Um, but yeah, I, I also just was really bad at motivating myself to do the things that I didn't want to do. So having a little last minute panic definitely helped, helped the motivation side of things. And did, 
and also, I mean, you're you're also a skilled musician. You 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 sing beautifully. You play the guitar, the saxophone. I'm sure there's a few other things <laughs> you play. I, I just have a feeling. <laughs> you, I mean, like I said, maximum humanity you know, is is on is should be the logo of your of your uh, your black. I like shop. that, but. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, it's just like, I can, I'm, I, I was, I was actually talking to my kid uh, recently because she just picked up the bass. Like for, pandemic for her has been really tough. She's been doing a great job in school. She's been being a real, really helpful around us. A lot of it had to do with the fact that when my wife had coronavirus really bad, she just kind of like, she was in tune with me to be as helpful as no possible. No kidding. And she just was a champion. Yeah. Doctor. Yeah. My kid it's was a well, and total champion there were some really really scary moments and she was a totally she came to the table when i needed her and it was really like a very bonding moment but at the same time it was like she doesn't do school in here yeah so she decided a couple months ago that she wanted to get the bass the bass guitar yeah. and we had give we had taken her when she was younger she was part of the school bands and she played the saxophone she hated <laughs> the saxophone she didn't like to practice the saxophone we didn't push yeah. her and then my wife plays the piano, so she was sending uh, she was sending my kid to piano lessons. We didn't like the piano teacher, and the, the, Lila wasn't really get she didn't like it. So we were just like, all right, so blah blah blah. So two months ago, she we, she said, I really want to get a bass. I want I love she loves music, and I want to get a better understanding of the of the music. So we were at the time, I was just like, you know what, the kid's been so great during pandemic, and she's been doing her grades have been great. Let's just get her whatever the hell she wants it i was trying to be like your yeah. parents that i didn't even realize it she was she elevator pitched me just i was yep. like your dad and I, I didn't even give her a book i was like here's the credit card go get yourself whatever you want <laughs> so she went down to the local music store she picked out a bass and an amp and then she we ended up you know she talked to the guy there and he he's giving her lessons she without our encouragement She's in her room and she practices all day, all night. In during classes, when she's finished her homework, she has the you know the video off on the class, and she's just playing the totally. bass until you know it's. And what I told her today was, is I love how passionate she is, because I feel like if I were to push her, she wouldn't enjoy it as much. What I wonder with you is with because your parents are so talented and so musical, especially your father. Your father's a genius, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. If you can do what he's doing at the level that he's doing, yeah. I mean that's there's some degree of genius. Do you feel like what I was getting to with her was I feel like if I pushed her too hard, it would have destroyed her enjoyment. And to the point where there's an opportunity for her to join and she's doing great. And she's doing she's she's enjoying it and that's good enough for me. She has the opportunity to join a, a jazz band, and I said to her, "I don't want you to lose the enjoyment of this by being involved in something you it is like work." And what I want to know with you is, did you ever feel with the music that you were being it was being foisted upon you, and you felt like this incredible pressure because your family is so musical and gifted? Mm, that's a good question. Um, not necessarily. I mean, I guess. Maybe, maybe to some small extent, but, but by and large, no, I, I really, I've always enjoyed music. I mean, that was, that was the first thing, that was the first thing that I really kind of fell in love with at, at school. Like when I was in elementary school, I started on, um, well, I, I went through a bunch of different quick phases of different instruments, but I played piano for a while, took piano lessons with my dad and, um, was quite good when I was in like elementary school. Uh, and then I kind of went downhill once we moved cause I wasn't taking lessons as, um, regularly. Hey, 
You got to milk yeah, the cows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got work to do. You can't be yeah, well, and, and I also switched to saxophone as well, so I'd kind of split my attention. And I wasn't playing music at home usually. It was. I mean, it's it's hard to practice in an environment where you can be heard. And if you're playing piano or saxophone in a house, you can be heard. Um, you know, I guess electric bass is nice in that you can uh, you can put yourself in headphones and 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 be able to just hear yourself and you don't have to worry about performing for anybody, but, but practicing in a full house is is difficult. So I I didn't really practice much at home. I took a lot of music classes in school. So I was playing a lot, um, you know, when, when I was in school. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's always been a passion of mine as well as, as well as the, uh, the, the blacksmithing and the bladesmithing and the farming, you know, it's all, 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 uh, all part of the same (laughs) package, I guess. Yeah, let's talk about that package. I I, th- I feel like with music, people who who understand music. My, my father, my grandfather was a cellist of the New York Philharmonic oh, wow. under Tuscanini, and it just stopped there. I mean, my dad played the cello when he was a kid, and then his dad, who was very strict, was just like, you know, you want to you want to hit him over the head with the cello, and then and then and then and he wanted to play. And then my dad ended up playing jazz drums, and then with me, I wanted to just please my father, so I played the cello, and I sucked at it. I sucked at it, and it became something. And I was doing it because I felt like I felt like I needed to do it to have some sort of connection with my father. Like there was a there was a, it was this feeling of like maybe if I play the cello. I'll have a greater connection with him. And, and it was like, it got to the point where I resented it because I just not get any mm. good. And then my, my cello teacher hated me and, and which is fine. And, and it was like, it just was, and I just became not musical at all. Like I, not musical at all. I mean, like I, it, I was stunted as a young boy with music because my father, my, my father felt like my, ha- my father had two daughters from a previous marriage and he felt that popular music had, uh, corrupted. Uh-uh. So when I was born, he basically banned me from listening to popular music of the eighties. <laughs> so when I had a later jump into appreciating, like I have like some sort of like, you know, I was only allowed to listen to like Frank Sinatra and like Sammy Davis Jr. was about as, it was about as popular as I yeah. got. And it was like, it became, I felt stunted music. So I feel like people who have this kind of musical ability the fact that they're doing it from this passion of love and, and, and manifestation of what you're trying to get out, there's something that's very freeing about it. I, I, I'm very envious. Of totally. That. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of gone a couple of different ways for me because, um, you know, it, I mean, you're talking about your, your daughter just spending hours in a room practicing. That, that's amazing to me. I, I never felt that when I was in high school. I wouldn't have done that. And not even in college. I mean, I was practicing a lot in college. Uh, obviously I was a music major. I was, I was, um, doing a lot of classical voice stuff and I was doing, uh, I was playing in jazz bands on saxophone. So I, you know, I was, um, doing a substantial amount of practicing and I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy it, but I didn't feel compelled to do it all the time in the way that I did blacksmithing. Um, but I've actually, I mean, so my, kind of pandemic project. And I guess a little bit before that was, was to pick up the guitar. Cause I had played guitar when I was in like sixth and seventh grade and, uh, and I had enjoyed it just kind of, you know, strumming chords, playing all sorts of, you know, old folk songs from the sixties and stuff. Um, and, uh, so I, I wanted to pick up guitar. I kind of 
started to listen to it's it's funny I, I didn't listen to music for most of high school and college like just you know not not for pleasure or anything so I, I had started to listen to music and I felt myself um gravitating toward uh bluegrass in particular uh and mm. and I wanted to learn how to play guitar and 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 I found with guitar more than with any other instrument recently that I I can just I can play for hours I I, once I pick the guitar up, it feels like there's a timer. Like, like I, I can't actually put it down unless I've played for an hour. Um, wow. It, it, uh, becomes difficult sometimes trying to get work done, but, uh, but it's really, it's fun to have that sense of enjoyment. And, and I think you need to, you know, you were talking about, um, not wanting to, it to feel like work. And a lot of people come at music from, from different angles. Um, you know, the thing that fed me, musically and the saxophone was playing with other people like i needed to be playing in in jams and and uh and playing in bands and 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 jamming with people and and i wasn't really getting that in my little apartment in rural upstate new york i i right i wasn't i didn't have anybody to play with and you know i could practice and learn solos and um you know do my scales and get better, but, but I didn't have people to play with on saxophone. And so guitar was a a little bit refreshing to me. I I felt like it worked better as a solo instrument. I could play and sing at the same time. And, and that gave me something that I could share on the internet with people and share with, you know, other people in my life is more portable. So yeah, I don't know you got to find what works. And so, you know, if Lila wants to go and join a jazz band, I think it might be really great, you know, to give her a reason to practice in some you know, it's it's like, here's something that I can really pour everything in so that I can communicate and connect with people. Cause that's what, that's what music's about. Well, that's what anything's about in life. Really. It's kind of why we do anything. I feel like it's, it, but you know, the, the thing is with, with my kid is, is because luckily because she had formal training with, um, the saxophone and the piano, she learned how to read music. So she's able to translate that over with the bass, which has made it very easy for her. Like she just jammed with a friend of hers this weekend and they were practicing. But the difference is, and what's interesting now is with how peep kids learn how to play is she's able to download a song and then get the, uh, get the liner, get the chords yeah, or the, the, the tablature the, or whatever. Play, yeah. The tablature. And she can actually play along with the song, which makes it more fun. Like, it's way more because she can actually hear everybody playing it. Like, so she plays with, you know, she did some Black Sabbath this weekend and some of the strokes and, you know, kind of like stuff that she likes to do. And she's listening for bass lines and then she's downloading the song and then getting all the music. So she's able to. So it's almost as if she's kind of not playing by herself. Totally. Because the bass is not your, you know, it's not the lead instrument. So it's like you have to kind of under, hear how it's supposed to sound within the confines of the whole thing, which makes it more. Totally. Fun. Here's an off question: When you played the saxophone, did you know how to do the, the 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 solo in Baker Street? No, no. All right, that's it. That's Maybe I'll have to learn it. The only question when I, I when I pick up my that's, saxophone. That's a classic. Again. That's the most classic saxophone. Uh, Baker Street is the, my my wife. Anytime Baker Street comes on, my wife's job. She's a nurse practitioner. Yeah. Anytime it comes on, she sends me a message saying, "She's sorry, it's it's a text that says Baker <laughs> Street's on," and it's a classic. It's the most classic saxophone song. Uh, saxophone solo or any song i just just put love it all right so you decide to go to college for music. yes how did how did going to college affect how your focal point of becoming a bladesmith and a blacksmith um well so you know when i when i was in high school i was i was already pretty 
set on the idea of, um, you know, being a blacksmith and, and bladesmith. And I thought farming would also figure into it, uh, somehow. And I, I actually wasn't planning on going to college for a little bit. I, I, I kind of liked the idea of just going straight into trying to be self-employed as a blacksmith, but, um, you know, I, I talked with my parents a bunch and uh, about it, and 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 they really encouraged me to just go to college because it's you know, because of the experience. Like you make connections right. in college um, that you wouldn't make anywhere else, uh, and and I, I agreed that 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 was what I needed. I needed to kind of to get out of the house and and to to meet new people and and to explore other areas of interest. Like I, so I went to Williams college, which is a liberal arts school and, um, they don't require you to choose a major until the end of your sophomore year. So I, I went in with a totally kind of open mind in terms of what I was going to study. You know, I took a bunch of classes and a bunch of different things and, and, uh, wanted to just to, to try out different fields, maybe things that I hadn't been exposed to, to try to cultivate new, uh, new passions for, for, for other things. So, um, so there was that, but I also was pretty firmly set on, on wanting to do blacksmithing and bladesmithing. So, um, I basically, you know, I figured I'd, I'd go to college and then I'd do blacksmithing later or, or maybe something else. Um, and then when I was in college, I was, working on, uh, on, on really on vacation, school vacations, I would work on starting my business basically. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rack up orders over the course of the semester and then, uh, crank them out over the summer or over spring break or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then also make, you know, pieces to sell on speculation. So, so they kind of, they, both the college and the, and the, the, you know, knife making side of things progressed at the same time for me. I, I, I worked on them in, were, in parallel fashion. Were you, when did you get involved with becoming a blade? Uh, so it was actually, I made my first knife just before going to college. I guess it was like the summer after my senior year was really when I made my first handful of knives. Maybe it was a little bit earlier than that. Maybe it was summer after junior year. But I, I was still primarily in the blacksmithing vein. I, I had learned all of the knife-making things that I knew from blacksmithing books, which is not really... I mean, like, they'll tell you how to how to you know forge a blade and how to quench it in motor oil and, uh, and, and throw some wood scales on it. But they don't really teach you many knife-making techniques in blacksmithing books because it's a, it's a whole different skill set or set of skill sets, really. Um... So, but, but I had this kind of harebrained notion that, you know, everybody needs a knife and, uh, and they don't seem that hard to make. And, you know, if I'm going to try to make my living making things, knives might be a good place to start. It doesn't seem like it'd be that hard. Um, (laughs) I think that was, that was kind of my, my thinking in it was like, I want to be blacksmith or a bladesmith. I want to forge things, but I don't really know anything about making gates or railings. You know, forge welding is really hard. Uh, I don't have, you know, fabrication experience at all. I've never, you know, welded with an electric welder or, um, you know, any of those sorts of things. So, so, or I hadn't at the time, obviously I've done plenty of that now, but, um, so, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what I could do and knife making was part of that. So, 
um, it was March break, uh, freshman year of college. I bought my first belt grinder. Well, actually, I should say first I built the summer after senior year of high school before going to college. I built a little eight by ten shed uh, on the close side of the road that would have electricity. So I was I was already preparing for electric tools so that I could scale up a little bit and uh, and and be able to eventually sell knives. So I, I built this little shed that would house my grinder and drill press, and uh, and then I bought my grinder the. Um, spring break of freshman year and and I made a whole bunch of knives over over that spring break and then that was kind of the that was the start of the Jordan Lamote blades journey. What what kind of knives were you making when you first started kind of what was the di- direction you wanted um, to go? they were all fairly solidly in the ABS style. I mean I though I I wanted to make um I, I basically that that I made nine knives over the course of that two week spring break, and I made um, a a couple of Bowie knives and a chef knife and a couple hunting knives and a paring knife or two. Um, hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I I've always kind of wanted to do everything, and I I did have a concept of wanting to make swords eventually as well. Uh, yeah, so I guess from the beginning, I never wanted to specialize in any particular type. Maybe that's because you're a blacksmith and maybe it's because you're a musician and that, that, that you just don't want to pigeonhole your in, yourself into one thing. Like blacksmiths tend to not blacksmiths and bladesmiths are totally <laughs> like I know, but I know both. This is true. And I hardly, I rarely meet one that's like all encompassing. And I feel like there's such a discrepancy between blacksmithing and bladesmithing. And but when blacksmiths go into bladesmithing, it all seems very much along the lines of, well, they don't really need to specialize. I mean, there's not that much difference between this and that. <laughs> and we could probably do this. We could probably do all. Yeah. You know, that that might be it. I also think it might be kind of the converse of that, that I'm drawn to blacksmithing and to knife making because I don't like to choose. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it's, uh, I've always been interested in, in doing everything. You know, I'll, I'll see somebody doing something particularly at a high level and I'll say, Oh, I want, I want to do that. And, uh, and, and then, you know, invest some significant energy in, in figuring out how to do it. And I've, I've always wanted to do everything. Uh, and, right. and sometimes it feels frustrating, especially like when I was at college, uh, you know, playing in five different ensembles on three different instruments and like, um, I had friends who, who, you know, just played the violin and were really, really good at it. And, 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 or, you know, even, or just did music or what, you know, like it, it's, people can get really good specializing at one thing. And, and so sometimes it's frustrating to feel like I'm behind in one area or another. But I think when I step back and, and realize that, okay, this is who I am. I like to, to be a Renaissance man. Basically, I like to do as much as I can in as many different areas as possible. I can, I can come to the, to, to, to the, the conclusion that, you know, what I do in one area will enhance my, my understanding and my ability to perform in another area. And, uh, and I can, I can let that be the case. This is fascinating to me because also when you were 16, you you had you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. Is that yes. right? Yeah. What what I mean, 
what what made you go to the doc? What made your parents take you to the doctor? Was there something specifically that was going? Yeah, wrong I was or? losing my hearing on my right side. Um, yeah, it was so so the the brain tumor was was you know interesting. It, it definitely a a major um, kind of mark in my in my life. Uh, basically, I was I was noticing that my hearing was not as good on the right side of my. In, in my right ear, like if I would put to, if I was talking on the phone, I couldn't hear people when I would have the phone in my right ear, but I could just find in my left. So we, we went to get my hearing checked and it was, it was a strange result from the, the hearing, um, test because my hearing was almost normal, but my speech discrimination was zero. So basically I, what does that mean? When, you know, a standard, standard hearing test, you hear a bunch of different frequencies of, uh, pitch. So, you know, you go from a, a, you know, low, low pitch to high pitch, and they, they figure out where your hearing cuts out and then they do volume. So, so, um, you know, higher volumes and then make it quieter and quieter and quieter until you can't hear it anymore. So those are like the, 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 you know, pitch and volume, those were regular or almost regular in my right ear. But if you said a word into my ear, I couldn't distinguish what the word was. So then there was like, that's weird because that seems like a nerve thing rather than a than a you know ear hardware thing like your eardrum is right. full or something what you know um right. so i got an mri and it came back that i had a brain tumor so what were you were you when you were told 16 years old you have a brain tumor you're like the busiest kid around there ain't nobody busier <laughs> than you you're a musician you're a, a blacksmith. You got this farm. You have these cattle. You sixteen. You. What is your feeling when they tell you that you've? Oh man, I actually I distinctly remember this. So I was, um, my parents had just picked me up from my uh, Vermont Allstate Choir concert, and uh, we were in the car on the way home, and they said, "Well, the results of your MRI came back, and uh, you've got this brain tumor." Um, it was terrifying. I mean, like brain tumor is just a, it's, it's a, it's a scary set of words. You don't ever want to hear that. Um, I got some more information and that helped me process it a little bit more. So it's, you know, there, there are different kinds of tumors. This one is, uh, was an acoustic neuroma, which is, um, which is basically a growth of the Schwann cells on the acoustic nerve. The Schwann cells, uh, kind of help propagate the the nerve impulse from from one side of the cell to the other so these cells were um were multiplying and 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 it's but it's a benign tumor it stays in one place it doesn't metastasize it's not a cancer so so that was good news it meant that it could actually be right. surgically removed and done it could yes, be it exactly could be. and um and that I could make a full recovery physically like it wasn't it wasn't going to kill me it wasn't going to impair me uh, as long as we got it out. Um, so, so that was good. I mean, that, that, how, how was your, yeah. I mean, was this, so the surgery was relatively soon after the diagnosis. Um, I think it was, I think it was at least six months later. Uh, oh, so for that six months, are you just like, are you feeling, how are you feeling in that six months waiting for the operation? Yeah. So, I was, I was really preparing myself for the operation. Like the brain surgery, it's, it's a brain surgery is a big, uh, kind of 
<laughs> it's it's a big process. I mean, it was eight hours under anesthesia, um, and oh my God. and they take out a chunk of your head, uh, and it's your your acoustic nerve and your um, vestibular nerve, your balance nerve, are right next to each other. So it it messes with your your balance, and they're also not too far from your facial nerves. And uh, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot in there that can be affected that will make the the recovery time kind of considerable. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to, you know, exert myself for a little while after the surgery. Like it might be hard to, um, to balance or to, to stand up or whatever. So I was, I was really preparing myself. I, I got in really good shape, um, before the surgery. And I, and I, um, I was, you know, trying to figure out like what I was going to do to, to keep, to keep inspired basically after the surgery. If I, if I'm not able to, be in my blacksmith shop or to play soccer or to, uh, you know, be working with my oxen out on the farm. Like, what am I going to do? What? So, so I, I decided that I was going to make myself a chainmail shirt. Um, it was something that I'd wanted to do for a while, but you know, of course it's a lot of time and (laughs) it's a lot of sedentary time and I don't really have time for that. So I spent the, a bunch of time leading up to the surgery, just making, tons and tons of links. I was using a galvanized fence wire, electric fence wire. Um, and I would just cut thousands of these links, uh, and put them in a little container so that, you know, when I was done with my, uh, you know, done, done with my surgery, I could just, you know, use the pliers and put them together. Um, so that was, that was, I guess the biggest thing. And I came up with a reading list of a bunch of books that I wanted, um, as well. Did you, did you, after the surgery, was it a long recovery Um, or? It was about two months. Uh, I mean, two months to, well, so yeah, surgery was in July of uh, 2012 and is that right? Yeah. July of 2012. And, uh, you know, by, by September of that year, I was back playing soccer on my high school team. So, so that was like, I would consider full recovery. I mean, it obviously there there was a little bit more recovery that happened after that, but, um, yeah, those, those kind of two months were really intense. Basically after the, after the surgery, I couldn't, I couldn't sit up for more than a couple of minutes without feeling really queasy and nauseous and and dizzy. Um, and, uh, and I, I really couldn't walk. Uh, I spent a couple of days in the hospital and finally, finally made it home. Um, and then I lay in bed on the, on the first floor, uh, and I would get up for maybe a couple minutes at a time just to, you know, sit up and, and eat some food or whatever. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't even sit up for very long because my, my head couldn't handle it. I felt like I was, um, sloshing back and forth inside, like a weird kind of vertigo that, um, the way I described it was, you know, if you, if you take a, a bucket that's half full of water and you kind of rock it back and forth and then let it sit. That water's rocking back and forth inside the bucket still, but the bucket's kind of standing still, but it's that, that kind of sloshing that that I would feel inside. Um, whenever I just sit up, uh, let alone try to stand and walk. So it was, it was a couple weeks before I could, you know, get up and, and walk around the house. And then I, I just slowly work it, day after day to, to, to regain, you know, my, my balance and my, uh, you know, physical, um, strength and, 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 you know, 
just walking a little further every day. Uh, well, you know, the whole thing is, it, it struck me because recently uh, I've been uh, getting, I've been getting a lot of, I've been taking care of my health, getting blood work done and all mm. that stuff and trying to, I want to be as healthy as I can for my kid going down the line and for myself. And, you know, oh, yeah. And I actually just got my eyes checked and I'm going back to the doctor a couple more times because I may be, I may have the beginning stages of glaucoma. Oh. And there's a there's something going on with one of my optic nerves. It's not a big deal at this point. We're still in the testing stage. But I, it, it, at first, when the doctor told me you might have the beginning, the early, early, early stages of glaucoma, I thought, I'm a fucking visual. Oh, sorry, I'm a visual artist. What am I going to do? You know, in my mind, it was like I went down. For, I'm like, I painter, I'm a knife maker, a blacksmith. What am I going to do? And then as it progressed, all I could think of is, eh, listen, the tests are still happening and there are, it's very treatable at this stage in the game. And I'm not too worried about it, but at the same time, my, for, there was like a, there was like a 12 hour period where my wife was just like, Oh, he's in, down in the dumps right now. And all I could think of is what you must've been going through thinking that a brain tumor, it's like, how is this going to change me? Is this going to change me as a person? Is this going to, you know, the, you think about what the brain does and you think about just the tiniest little things like perfect example with coronavirus. And I don't think people yeah. realize this. And, and I, when I talk to people, especially because when I, my daughter and I are, when we had coronavirus, the only thing we say, the only thing we had was we lost our sense of smell and our sense of taste. Well, that it's that means that it's affecting your brain. It isn't your people seem to think that if your smell and taste, a little coronavirus is going to your nose mm. and your mouth. It's not. It's going it's to your gonna, brain. Yeah, yeah. These are like these are the 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 coronavirus is attacking your brain, and all you can think of is these tiny little details that are going to affect your everyday life. I just can't imagine the thought of you. You're a 16 year old. You got the world on. You got the world in the street. You know, in your hand, and you're ready to go. And all of a sudden, you're just like. This is this may or may not change my life completely. How has it? And now we have all these years have passed. Has the, the has did the brain tumor and being it taken out? Did it affect your life? Yeah, I mean, it did. Yeah, I mean, it, of course, it was really intense in the in the in the time, and and probably particularly intense for my parents more more so than for me even. Um, but. Yeah, they got to find someone. They got to find someone to take your spot in the happy, if happy. Win, well, right? we, yeah, joke, we hadn't right? gotten anywhere near that yet, but like, oh. <laughs> um, get the understudy. Got to get an understudy, right? Yeah, exactly. No, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I especially as a musician, like having having, I, I mean, having a, a tumor on my acoustic nerve, wondering how it's going to affect my hearing. I'm. Um, yeah, so that that was that was intense. I'm now completely deaf in my right ear, uh, basically since the surgery. Um, so that has affected my life a little bit. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't affect me on on um, in most circumstances, but it's it makes it a little bit more difficult in noisy rooms, for instance, to pick out one noise over another. Uh, it's hard to talk to huh. people in a in a in a noisy environment. Uh, if somebody's on the wrong side of me when we're having a conversation, I need to turn my head. You know, just little things like that. Uh, I can't tell directions, so if you shout my name in a big room, I basically just spin around until I locate the source of the huh. sound with my eyes. Um, <laughs> uh, huh. But that's it. I mean, but you still, when you're playing music, you still have the same feelings. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, by and large, the the, the brain is really resilient uh, in terms of 
the the way it can just pop back and build new pathways and and compensate for uh you know a, a certain kinds of you know trauma like that uh like like a like a tumor um it's it's pretty remarkable right. how how well the body adapts and i i probably had an advantage being a 16 year old in that regard too like my my brain is still developing and growing and 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 i'm sure that was helpful um hmm. yeah it's not the and you know in terms of my outlook on life i guess it's it's shaped it a little bit uh it's not something that i think about on a daily basis but it was definitely an intense experience and and um yeah. i guess shaped the way i go about things a little bit i would imagine now, now i'm going to fast forward to what's going on yeah. now congratulations on winning his Fulbright scholarship to go study in India. <laughs> Thanks. The, the, when, when I saw that post, I was like, I got to get him on here before he gets yeah. to India. And I didn't realize it until the October, but I still wanted to get the idea. How did you apply? What, I feel like when I look at your work now, I especially I noticed that you do a lot of work that's, and I think that your mother had a little bit of experience with uh, religion and Indian culture and stuff. Yeah, like she that. was she was in an Indian dance company for a time. Uh, is is that how you became interested in kind of these kind of more Indian and Persian style <laughs> daggers? And no, actually, um, funnily enough, it was uh, it was Forged in Fire. When I was on Forged in Fire, I was required to make a talwar. I had never heard of what a talwar before. I, I, I didn't know what one was, and I did a bunch of research and, you know, figured out, okay, the talwar is this Indian saber. Um, and so I, I made one for Forged and Fire. And then once I had done that, my episode came out, I had people asking for them. So, but, uh, you know, I, I don't like to just make what kind of looks to me like a talwar. I, I wanted to actually do some research to be authentic in my, in my, representation of this you know it's a sword is a is a meaningful cultural object and and i I don't just want to flippantly reproduce something that's um you know just just somewhat resembles a tall where i want to actually you know study study them and 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 come from it come at it from a place of knowledge and so uh i've made a couple of tall swords since forged in fire and uh and you know, had the opportunity to really, um, dig in and, and I, uh, I did a, I was able to document a talwar at, uh, Ranjit Singh. I don't know if you follow him on Instagram. He's, um, uh, Ranjit Singh is a, is a, uh, a distributor, um, and a, and a purveyor of Indian traditional Indian arms. And, and he had a show in Manhattan, uh, with a bunch of talwars, uh, in it. And he allowed me to come down and document one, really take close photos and measurements and weigh it and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, I was able to recreate a sword based on, on that original. Um, and that was, you know, that kind of, um, study was really interesting to me. And so I was explore. I've been exploring the kinds of shapes, uh, that you find in Indian weapons. I mean, they're, they're really, really beautiful the 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 curve of the talwar the the um the flowing volumes of the handle uh, i most recently have made a peshkabs or a version of a peshkabs which is a an indian dagger that has a t back and a and a very thick armor piercing point 
in a particular curved uh, blade profile. So I've been experimenting with that, but I've also been really intrigued by Koftgari, which is the traditional method to um, to really both embellish, but also um, to imbue with power these weapons. Uh, which in, so Koftgari, for those of those who don't know, is is a process of um, laying a very thin gold or silver wire onto an iron surface. And it's a, it, it, it's a very quick method of embellishment, uh, that, that leaves the, the surface covered with very intricate patterns, uh, in a precious metal. And, and it's very well suited to the Indian aesthetic, which is typically to cover every surface with as much ornament as possible. It's really, it's, it's a very rich, um, it's a it's a rich visual language that they that they have in India, and I've just been really really interested with that whole um, that whole aesthetic, and and uh, and I decided that you know the best way to really immerse myself in it and to to learn would be to to go to India and and learn from the people who are actually you know practicing these techniques and to learn Kafgari uh, in in India and to you know, study into Indian swords in Indian museums with people who are really connected with the cultures and the languages and the, and the, and the mythologies that are uh, represented. Um, and, and to, to, to get really the, as, as, as full a picture I can, as I can of this rich culture. Hmm. So did you, you decided that, I don't know how a Fulbright scholarship works. Do you apply for it? Did you have how did how did you go about doing the Fulbright? Yeah, scholarship? so it's a it's a very intensive application. I mean, so I am really lucky because I went to a a, a well regarded liberal arts college. They, they people talk about Fulbrights and fellowships and stuff. There, there are a lot of resources that were available to me. Um, I mean, anybody who has a bachelor's degree can apply for a Fulbright, uh, but I had a lot of support through the college when I wanted to do that, even though I had graduated several years prior. Um, but yeah, you, you, you submit an application. It's a, it's a very intensive application with, uh, a bunch of, um, well, a couple of longer essays and a bunch of shorter essays and, and they want to, they're looking for a, a you know, a bunch of variety, a, a large variety of things. You're basically a cultural ambassador. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a cultural exchange program. They want, um, they want you know Americans to go into other places in the world and uh, you know bring in, in in such a way that they're able to both enrich the culture enrich the you know at, to 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 bring something to the culture as as an ambassador and also to to gain something that can be brought back to America so that it's a, the idea is it's a mutual. Um, it's 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 a mutually beneficial program. So they want to they want to see from candidates that you are going to do that, uh, that you're not just going to you know be hold up doing your research, but you're also going to interact with the communities you're in and and really make connections with the people in the place you're going to be. So I would imagine that you had to find a guide or a place for you to learn this technique. Yes. And- you had to like map everything out. I mean, what was that yeah. like? So it's, it's a little bit open-ended because obviously you're applying about a year before you're actually going to be 
able to start the program. Um, so right. there's there's a lot that's open ended, but you want to come up with as comprehensive a plan as you can. So I made a couple of different connections. You need you need an institution to sponsor you. Usually, um, usually it's a university, but it can also be a museum uh, or or another um, you know NGO or or a uh, um, a nonprofit. And, uh, and so, so, so some institution needs to sponsor you. So I had to, I had to dig around and find out, okay, who's going to be able to support a project where I'm studying Kaftgari. Um, and so I connected with this museum, uh, that's just outside of Jodhpur, which actually did draw on some of my, um, connections through my mom. She had, uh, she reached out to her friends who were India scholars and, you know, was asking them, you know, who, who, uh, you know, which, what, what kind of institutions should, should I talk to who has connections? And, and I, uh, I made a connection with this Institute of Folklore actually outside of, uh, Jodhpur. And he was really interested in, in, you know, the, the metalworking techniques of the, of the rural farming community surrounding Jodhpur. And, and, you know, I added kind of portions of that to the Kaftgari, uh, in, in my, my, um, in my proposal. Uh, and then I also connected with, um, Sandeep Singh, who is in Udaipur, which is not too far from Jodhpur. And, uh, and he's a Kaftgari artist. He's on Instagram at, uh, traditional art decor and, uh, phenomenal, uh, uh, Kaftgari artist. So I was gonna, I was going to go and study with him as well. So I was still planning to, um, the, the whole Fulbright scenario is a little bit complicated right now because the, the, COVID situation in India is so bad, they've kept delaying the start date. So it's not supposed to start until January right now. And, and it's, there's a possibility that it, it actually will be canceled. So we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm kind of waiting for, waiting for more information on that front. Um, canceled or just rescheduled? So apparently there's a policy against rescheduling it. Obviously they weren't planning, you know, Fulbright's never planned on having a worldwide pandemic that would, uh, that would totally block any, uh, so, so apparently they can't postpone, um, grants to another year. Maybe that will change. I don't know. Um, I'm still, <laughs> still uh, kind of in a, in a waiting game no. here, but, but uh. I guess, you know, that's a long answer to your question. Basically I did need to make a lot of connections and, uh, put together a, a pretty clean proposal about what I wanted to do in India while I was there. Ugh. I hope I I because I remember I I don't know if I, I you and I were messaging back and forth but I was just like God I wonder what's going to happen because it's so bad in India but it's so bad within the last couple months because it was it was actually they were doing great totally. for a while like surprisingly great and I was talking to a friend of mine who works at Pfizer and says <laughs> says the biggest problem with uh, vaccines in India is they just don't have the they don't have the uh, infrastructure to keep it mm. cold. For the long, there's for, there's no infrastructure to hold the vaccine for as long as they needed to hold it. So that's like, I, I don't know how they're going to figure it out. Because I, but I, geez Louise, I really hope that for some reason they figure something out with you because, you know, you're, you know, it's it's obviously it's out of your hands, but at the same time it's out of the Fulbright's right. hands too. Yeah, we're we're all we're all in the same boat, really, just oh, trying to figure yeah. it out. But, 
that's all you do is wait. You wait for all these yeah. answers. You wait about the brain tumor. You wait about the master bladesmith. Have the journeyman smith. Now the full yeah. brain. You're all ready for everything, and there you have to wait on everybody else. It's obnoxious. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. Well, and it's 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 it's, it's an exercise for sure. You know, you, you you have to you have to put everything you've got into it, and then when it's out of your hands, you just have to let go. And that process uh, of letting go is a is a really difficult one. Um, yeah, but it's uh, you've done I, your best. You've done everything you could. Now it's exactly, your exactly, exactly. It's it's an interesting kind of push and pull. Hurry up and wait. Uh, because one thing I noticed about your work, especially I looked at your touch mark, mm. and there is this really. I feel like there's this real uh, connection towards the Sanskrit. Is mm. it Sanskrit? The, the your 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 logo has. Um, a lot of the the traditional characteristics of the I don't know the font is interesting, the right yeah, one, yeah. But like there is that connection with that Sanskrit and your font. I hadn't even don't thought about that. Um, yeah, really? no, I've I've had a lot of people tell me it's it's um, very Tolkien esque. Uh, you know, the 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 mark that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uses um, or used. Uh, is it has has some similarities? Yeah, it, I I um I basically just came up with that after doing a whole lot of sketching, uh, and 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 you know figuring out. But but that's interesting to to hear you say. Yeah, I guess um similar to maybe the. I don't I don't know if it's similar to the Devangari script, which is which used for right. Hindi, or if it's more ser- similar to Arabic script actually. Um, Something I like I don't that. Know. Either one of them. You definitely, you definitely have the vibe. I actually looked it up. That Devin Gary. There was. They don't have the dots. They don't. Devin, okay. Right? Yeah. I, listen. And listen. I am not an expert. <laughs> I don't. I never pretend to be an expert. I like to talk like a regular person. So when I say dots, I'm saying that with peace and love. Totally. And respect. I, I. I definitely think that. Um, I love the fact that you have this kind of. Uh, complete appreciation for that heritage and i love i love the whole story and i'm telling you this i'm like pulling for is that is that the the last knife you have you put on the sword it, it had that uh, i don't know i remember what the name of it was but it has that kind of t construction yes. almost like an i that's the pesh caps i've been i was talking about yeah is that one of the knives that's going down to your master that's placement? the plan that's the plan so tell me about all right, tell me about we're wrapping this thing up. Tell me about the knives that you're bringing down for the master blades. So test. yeah, um, I have I have a total of six candidates, and uh, and I'll choose five of them. I have so I have three that I made last spring. I was planning to test in June of 2020 initially. Uh, so I I started last spring and I ran out of time for a number of reasons, but blade show wasn't held anyway. So, um, I, last spring I made, uh, the, the key on dagger that that's kind of the, the, the centerpiece of the, of the set. So I, I made that, uh, that piece, which is one of the most challenging pieces I've, I've put together to date. Uh, very tricky grinding, uh, lots of hand file work, some, um, more difficult machining, uh, that I've, that I've done, um, s- fluted handle yes. wire thread. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, um, yeah, it's got, it's got Damascus blade and spacers and it's got a, a Indian rosewood handle that's, uh, fluted with, um, a, uh, kind of double twisted, uh, silver wire inlaid. It's got hot blued mirror polished, uh, f- fittings, 
um, and and a ring. So it's a it's a ring dagger. It traditionally be uh, you know uh, used in a left hand. It's a it's a left handed dagger. It'd be used in the left hand uh, with a rapier in the right uh, during dueling um, in the you know say fifteenth sixteenth century. That's the the kind of era of this this dagger. So that's that's one piece. Um, and then I made a variation on a puko, so a Scandinavian uh, kind of carry knife. It's not particularly traditional in its construction or um, in blade geometry, but the the profile is definitely evocative of the puko uh, aesthetic. And uh, the other one I made last year is a chef knife, uh, Damascus integral chef knife with um, with an S grind and uh, and a, a fluted handle that has this um, kind of these these flutes that wrap around the handle and kind of create a, a, a central ridge along the the back half of the handle. It was a little bit inspired by um, actually the 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 idea was inspired by a handle that Don Wen made a couple of years ago, uh, actually a collaboration with, um, Hardwood Forge. Um, and, uh, so, so I was inspired with, uh, from, from that knife and wanted to kind of take it to, to, to do it in, in my way, make it a little bit more of a, um, you know, a, a, a kind of three dimensional sculptural form of really, like f- filling out the 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 twist uh of of that handle um uh so it's kind of my variation on on his brilliant idea um and then what and else? so so those are three and then i have uh i have a big old sujihiki with a um octagonal handle uh damascus blade um so that's a that's a, a candidate i have another chef knife uh that's a kind of complex, um, bold mosaic pattern, uh, chef knife, and I have the Pesh cabs. Um, so those are, those are my six. Question yes. for you based on, and then, uh, my question is, do you think, how do you think culinary knives are going to fare with the judges? Because it seems as though it's very clear that chef knives are more of a, kind of in demand thing with the ABS they're starting to address you know they're starting to kind of like you know Blade Magazine had Don on the Mm. cover Don's knife on the cover and they're starting to realize that this is like part of it how do you think your knives will be received because they're culinary knives and not your traditional you know ABS yeah um, well so actually none of my knives are traditional ABS ABS knives on the on the on the Mastersmith um you know, and and I was conscious of that. You know, I felt like for the journeyman, I was, and actually, I'm going to steal this quote right from my friend Zach Jonas, who I think phrases it very well. The journeyman is, you know, basically proving you can speak in the ABS language, and the master smith is is kind of developing your own language, and and that's really what I set out to do. Um, I so so I don't have any Bowie knives with flat grinds um you know my my dagger is a is a you know very um it's it's very traditionally inspired by the historical european daggers which many of the abs mastersmith daggers are not um you know so so there's there's that the the pesh calves obviously not a flat grind it's got this t back this 
flowing curves. There's not a straight line on the thing. That's not a very ABS style. And, and the chef knives, again, are also kind of unconventional. They don't have ricassos and guards. They have, um, you know, either convex or, uh, or S grinds, um, integral bolsters. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the ABS wants to see execution. And I think that's the most important part. I mean, obviously there are little criterias and the criteria that you have to follow. Um, you know, the blade can't be over a certain length. It has to have a metal bolster. Um, other than that, they're, they're open to anything. And so as long as the blade is straight and the pieces fit tightly together and it's symmetrical, they're, they're, they'll, they'll go over just fine. Now, growing up as a, my father was Jewish and he used to say to me, I don't want to put a can of hurra, a can of hurra on the situation. A can of hurra is like the evil eye. It's like the yeah. jinx. You don't want to jinx it. He would always say when my daughter was being born, he's like, I don't want to talk. I don't want to put a can of hurra on it because I don't want it to jinx the situation. So I'm not going to put a can of hurra on your passing or not right. passing. But in my mind, especially listening to talking to Jason Knight in terms of what he's looking for you're his type of candidate because he wants to see something other than what everybody else is doing. And I would say, I'm, I'm saying this out of, you know, just complete speculation. If Jason Knight is one of your judges, he's going to pass you 100%. I hope so. <laughs> I think me, me personally, me personally, as, you know, as your friend and as we're all pulling for you. And I know that no matter what you do, it's going to be great. And I can only imagine after hearing about the brain tumor and everything else, I would imagine everything you being nervous is over. <laughs> I, I would think that you know. I would think that being nervous isn't you know. No one's nervous anymore. It's just like you had. You were nervous when you're 16. You don't have to be well, nervous now. Well, maybe I maybe I give that off. I mean, there's there are always nerves. There are always nerves. And and the better you get at something, the more you feel like you have something to prove. And that's something to, that that that. I think that's a pretty universal truth, and it's and it's and it's something to work against. You know, to 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 ha- kind of cultivate that sense that you know, what I have is, is good, <laughs> even though, um, and it's good enough. Like, <laughs> even though, even though there's always something that can be better, there's always going to be somebody who's better. Like what I have is, is valuable. That, that, that's, uh, <laughs> something that I try to hold on to because yeah, they're definitely nurse and, and they don't just go away. <laughs> Jordan Lamote has a deep understanding, ladies and germs. That's it. I'm. I'm. I cannot wait. I can't. I'm pulling for you. Where everyone's pulling for you, especially pulling for this. Uh, this. This going to this. Uh, this grant. We're really, really, really pulling for you on that. We're fans, and and we will still be fans. Thank you so much for. for well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. The full blast, in fact. Hope it's a full. Let's. There you go, my man. Listen, guy. Listen to me, everybody. We got some good. Thank you once again, Jordan, for being down here. I really appreciate your flexibility. I know you're you're about to go to Blade Show and you're going to knock him dead. And we're we're all in it for you. We're all in it. We're in the tank for you, 100. percent Ladies and germs, I want you to go support Axe Wax. Go support uh, AK Interactive. And another thing, I got some great guests coming up. I got next week. We got Mark Peacock, and then in two weeks. You heard it here. we got Nick Rossi's coming in. And before Nick Rossi comes in, I want to tell you something. June 5th. So this is coming out on the 4th. On the June 5th, you don't have to ask us any more questions. You can go to Nick Rossi Knives and buy his new video series. 
because I have a feeling that it is going to explain to you the hows, the whys, and the what's of knife making, knife forging. He's he's one of the great teachers. He's the gold standard of teaching knife making and blacksmith in the United States, and he's got a new video coming out. There are no promo codes because he's got it reasonably priced. I want you to go out and I want you to get it. I'm going to get it because i got to prepare it for him. So I want you to go to Nick Rossi Knives. Go pick up his, his video because it's very important. And when you start to support artists and you support, start to support local business guys and guys in this community, it makes them do it more. And if they do it more, then you're going to do it more. And if you do it more, you can do it better. That's all I have to say. It's next week. Uh, Mark Peacock's going to be here. And Jordan, we're sending you our best vibes for uh, victory. Victory. Congratulations and thank you. Well, once thank again. you, Jeff. I, re- I really appreciate it. You're the man. We're, 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 we're pulling for you. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.